Um, so we got it. We had it. Intimidating. This is a little intimidating. I'm, I'm very. I'm, I'm starting to sweat. Oh my god. Whiskey, whiskey. The singer's getting sore. We raise the roof now when we're lower in the floor. The band is blistered, but we got a little more. When I say one, two, Welcome to the Whiskey Topic, the weekly podcast that tends to get off topic. My name is Mark Bylock. I'm the author of The Whiskey Cabinet, and my co-host is Jamie Johnson, who runs a private but approachable bourbon club here in Toronto, Canada. You can also find our podcast on the website whiskey.buzz. If you want another song. Welcome to episode 66 of The Whiskey Topic. Uh, this week's topic is going to be... Canadian Whiskey with Dr. Don. With Dr. Don. Yay. We have uh, Dr. Don Livermore here uh, from Corby slash Weiser's... Slash Hiram Walker. Slash Hiram Walker. <laughs> slash Walker. It's, it's a very... We got into the whole how who owns what in Canada and... That alone it's, gave me a headache. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but we've we've talked about Doctor Don on the podcast many times. Many times. Uh, a couple of podcasts ago, we talked about uh, JP Weiser's Last Barrel. Yep. And we talk often about Lot Forty and Goodrum. Yeah, I feel like we get, we can start sort of. So we have a lot of uh, listeners in America, and we know your stories and your whiskey uh, and your whiskey stories very well. Um, but we have to we have to like give some props to Canadian whiskey history because it's actually quite interesting. So settle in. Yeah. Dr. Don's going to give you a little uh, Canadian Whiskey History 101. Yeah. Um, so we, we've had this conversation in the car, but Don, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the history of Canadian Whiskey. Yeah, I think uh, Canadian Whiskey uh, has sold itself a little short on its stories and how it came about to see the style that we see today. And I think we need to do a better job as Canadian Whiskey producers to tell that story. And if you go back to it, it really starts in 1769. Uh, that was the first instance of making whiskey in Canada, and that was in Quebec City. Up until that point, Canadians likely would have drank rum because that would have been the uh, food stock or the feed source that was accessible to them. They were bringing in cane from the uh, Caribbean. But as Canadians moved to the interior, they wanted to drink booze, uh, and grain was accessible to it. And that distillery, we, we no longer with us, nor do we know the name, but that was the evidence of, of making whiskey was 1769 in Quebec City. But uh, Canadians moved to the interior, and then there's a number of things that happened to create the style of whiskey we see in Canadian whiskey. And one of them was the Scottish Highland clearances. And that was a period of uh, about 100 years, about 1750 to 1850, where there was a mass immigration of Scottish immigrants to North America. The rich urbanites were buying the rural properties in Scotland and it caused a mass displacement. With that, they brought their uh, moonshine stills. So they were making moonshine in early Canadian life. The other big event in Canadian whiskey history was 1776. Do we know what year that was? I felt like this is a test. <laughs> I got, got. It's the Revolutionary <laughs> War. The Revolutionary, not the Civil War. The Revolutionary, <laughs> the Revolutionary War. War, yes. And... Uh, surprisingly, a lot, a lot of Canadians don't realize that 1776 was a big year in America, but America fought the British, and when British lost the battle, they went to Canada. I'm, I'm an Empire Loyalist, or my family was an Empire Loyalist. With that, we went up through the hills in New York, in Ohio, Kentucky, Illinois, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and with that, again, a mass immigration and pot distillation. So by the time you get to early 1830s in Canada, there was 250 registered distillers. These are the registered ones making moonshine. Have you had a chance to try some moonshine? Mm-hmm. Hit or miss. Hit or miss. And typically when I do a whiskey tasting, people now, yeah, it's not very pleasant tasting. And, and Canadians agreed with you in the 1830s. They really didn't like it. And that's actually where the term swamp water came from was that uh, moonshining. So 
along comes a family called the Gooderham and Warts family. There are two brother-in-laws, and they settled downtown Toronto in the Don Mills River area, and they came to the Canada because they were millers. They, they arrived in Canada in 1832, and they took on a milling company for about five years, and they were very good at what they did. Um, farmers would come to their uh, milling company with a bushel of grain, get their grain milled up, and what they would do is trade it in that period where the farmer would leave 10% of his milled product with Gooderham and Warts and took 90% home. And Gooderham and Warts started stockpiling all this grain. Well, what do you do with it all? Make whiskey. Whiskey keeps yeah. better than grain. And that's how they got into the business. But Gooderham and Warts fundamentally changed how whiskey was made, uh, period. They had a fellow for, uh, working for them with the last name Riley. He developed a patent in 1845. And what that was was the art of double distillation through two column stills. Mm -hmm. So we, we, we recognize column stills in the bourbon industry as the long, narrow tube with the trays in it. So they would distill it twice. Yeah. And the second column was called a rectifier, which would strip out the characters that people did not like in moonshine. So they made a light-style whiskey. And we're accustomed to, in Canada, that most whiskey traditionally have been lighter style because that's what people wanted. Mm -hmm. People wanted that light-style whiskey. They didn't want to drink that moonshine anymore. To make a little story uh, shorter, by the time you hit 1870 in Canada, there was only 15 distillers left uh, in Canada making light-style whiskey. The guys that had the money to uh, make those double distillation right. towers stayed in business. So the, the little guys that couldn't do it, just they, they, that wasn't the f flavor of whiskey that people wanted. So they, they It's like it is today. It's, yeah. like it is, it's the marketplace. The marketplace yeah. demanded a lighter style, smoother tasting style mm -hmm. of whiskey, and that's what, what they wanted. Um, another uh, folk that uh, a person that was a key to the Canadian whiskey history was Henry Corby. Uh, Henry Corby was from the Scottish Highland Clearances, and he settled around Belleville, Ontario, which is just east mm -hmm. of Toronto. And he came to Canada uh, as a baker. That's what he did for a living. But if you were a pioneer back in that era, you did lots of different businesses as well. And he was also a steamship captain. And what he would do was he would bring in corn from the United States because the United States was a little bit of an older country than us. And they had their lands developed. And he would import the corn for his bakery and also into his distillery to make light style, double distilled spirit. Um, but these guys also used every ounce of the property that they could. So what he would do is he would clear the land around his property and the grain that grows in crappy Canadian conditions, <laughs> rocky soil, sandy soil, swampy mm -hmm. soil, is rye. Rye grows in those conditions. So they would plant rye around their properties and make a heavier style rye whiskey to blend it together. We talked about this earlier that uh, I always ask in whiskey tasting, what's the main ingredient to the dish curry chicken? Yeah. And I always get the hesitation. I know, like, you mean chicken, right? And like, what else could you mean? <laughs> what else? <laughs> yeah, but we understand. I don't cook. <laughs> Yeah, but we understand when, okay, I know what I'm ordering when I get curry chicken. It's, it's what it's going to taste like. So in Canada, we understand it as rye whiskeys. Mm -hmm. Rye is the grain that gives flavor to Canadian whiskeys. The analogy I give to as well is uh, Irish whiskeys will use barley because barley is prevalent there. They also double distill corn whiskey there as well, but barley gives them character, their whiskeys. And, and Scotland and blended scotch peated barley. So rye is what Canada and what it does well. Um, the other gentleman that key to Canadian whiskey was Hiram Walker, uh, which is the distillery where we're at today. Um, Hiram Walker is an American. He, at the age of 22, he came to Detroit as a grocery store clerk. Um, that's what he did for a living. And it wasn't like the grocery stores we think of today, going up the, the aisles with a grocery cart. He would bring in the goods that farmers would make, mm -hmm. right? And one of them is moonshine. I don't know what possessed Hiram Walker to do it, uh, but he would take that moonshine and run it through charcoal. 
I suspect mm-hmm. they're running lots of things through charcoal in that era uh, to purify stuff. He, he would take that with his, with his moonshine, and he would blend it together. I actually look at Hiram Walker maybe as the first blender. Mm-hmm. He would take these blends. He would sell it at his grocery store uh, and started to develop the grocery. He started to become a merchant, and he wanted to build a distillery. So he actually looked south. If you don't realize it, Windsor, Ontario, is the only uh, Canadian city south of the U.S. border. And he bought the property here, 469 acres for uh, 1,600 pounds to start his distilling empire. There were and only he, two houses here. And he primarily did it because of fears of prohibition. He kind of knew prohibition he was coming. He knew prohibition was coming. Yeah. Um, and there's a number of factors as well, because uh, that was the cusp of civil war as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the U.S. dollar wasn't doing very well, and property was cheap in Canada. Yeah, property was cheap. It was yeah. we actually weren't even a country, quite honestly, yet. Yeah. And he bought this property to create his distillery. And uh, as I was alluding to, there's only two houses here. Today, there's eight thousand Canadians that will commute daily across the border into Michigan to work. And he probably was the first commuter. He never lived in Canada because he had to go across the river. Yeah, he didn't need a passport. <laughs> <laughs> there's he no didn't border need a passport. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and likewise, the other uh, key whiskey baron was J.P. Weiser. He was in the similar situation as as Hiram Walker, as, as the pressures probably of civil war and property and everything. And he he was a farmer. Mm-hmm. He sold cattle and. Uh, if you have a chance to go around most distilleries, you always smell an odor in the air, and it's a misconception. People usually think that's the smell of yeast and fermentation. It really isn't. It is actually us as distillers drying down the leftovers, and then that's what we call as distillers' grains. That was mind-blowing, actually. Cause it was we, totally it was mind-blowing. Because totally. you always drive through. You're like, I oh, yeah, it's the yeast. Go, it's yeah. the yeast. Uh, no, yeah. it's a distiller's grain. It's pretty grain. easy. Yeah. yeah. It, it is an odd thing. Again, when I show people that, and they say, what? Yeah, it it is what we smell. And JP was a smart guy. Mm -hmm. He actually knew the waste from a distillery grew cattle faster than anything else. And he actually has a journal article. I'm a science geek. Mm -hmm. Uh, He has a journal article in the 1860s showing that's what grew cattle fast. So he bought a distillery uh, right across from Ogdensburg, New York, one of the most narrow parts of the St. Lawrence Seaway, uh, in a place called Prescott, Ontario, for the purpose of growing cattle. (laughs) <laughs> he knew the waste from a distillery uh, grew his cattle, and he was actually the first North American to export cattle to the United Kingdom. He had over 60,000 head of cattle at one point. Wow. Yeah, because that, that grain is so protein-heavy that the cattle mm-hmm. was just... They were grew fast. They were they, big. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a big cattle back in the day. And, they, they continue, and we continue that practice today. How funny. We're full circle in a distillery. We, we go from farmer to distilling uh, back to the farm. So next time you have your piece of steak... Think about the distiller's dry grains. That went, you know, sure. Hopefully you're having a glass of Weiser's whiskey with 100%. it. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, I mean, or Lot 40 or Pike Creek yep. or Gooder yep. Awards. But yeah, and, and then suddenly to Weiser, we hit the biggest impact for Canadian whiskey. Most people believe prohibition made Canadian whiskey what it is today, actually killed the Canadian whiskey category. What helped grow Canadian whiskey category was the American Civil War, which was 1861 to 1865. And it makes sense when you when you tell it like this. It makes total sense. The American North was fighting the America South. Where's all the U.S. distilleries located? In, yeah, the, in the South. In yeah. the South. So do you think the America South is going to start selling whiskey to the America North? No. no. So these Canadians or transplant Americans or, or, or wherever they were from, from the sky, were started to sell. And that was the biggest growth period for Canadian whiskey. We, and we know when we had Reed on the podcast, uh, he was a historian that looked into a lot of uh, American history and whiskey. And his big thing was that's how people got paid. Like if you were if you were fighting for one side or another, you've got like the four ounces of spirit, moonshine, rum, whatever it was at the time. Uh, it was also currency. Yeah. yeah, and I, I, I suspect they probably prescribed it as a painkiller as well. Yes, <laughs> yes I, I'm, I'm sure right. they did. Yes. I, 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 really, in reality, they likely did. 
Um, but these gentlemen in Canada were very instrumental in Canadian life. Um, Canadians were not taxed in 1917. Canadians did not have an income tax in 1917. And if you actually go back to the to the his history of it, the number one taxpayer in Canada was Gooderham and Warrants. Number two was Hiram Walker. Number three was J.P. Weiser. Number four was Henry Corby. They paid the oh, tax bill maker. in Canada. Mm -hmm. They yeah. paid the tax bill in Canada. Um, they built Canadian life. They built the town. We're in the town, little section of our community. It's called Walkerville. There's a little town called Corbyville. Um, uh, J.P. Weiser was a Liberal MP. Uh, Henry Corby was a Conservative MPP. Um, the Graham uh, was a Mayor of Toronto. Um, it, Hiram Walker always remained American. He never became a Canadian, but they influenced Canadian life uh, to the, the extent they influenced politics, the town, the churches, the schools, the railways, the highways. And I had a chance to sit with and talk to our previous Canadian Prime Minister for about five seconds, but I would have loved to, to, <laughs> to tell him, you know what? Take maybe take Laurier off the five dollar bill and put the whiskey barons on the back yeah. of the five dollar mm -hmm. because that's how yeah. important they were to Canadian life. Yeah, uh, uh, and so what? And we talked about it earlier a little bit too. That so important and innovative is this? What is the purpose of a barrel? To hold things. To hold things and transport. Most people think <laughs> it's to mellow whiskey. To mellow. Yeah. And that, that's the majority of the answer every time right. I ask somebody that question. But you're right. It's yeah. to transport. That's yeah. They tipped mm -hmm. a barrel over and rolled it, and that's what they did for a living. So if you actually look at the Canadian whiskey category is you were a pioneer, you would have came to the Hiram Walker Distillery or J.P. Weiser Distillery with an empty barrel, they would have filled it up, you would have took it home, and whiskey would have been aged for a matter of weeks. Mm -hmm. And one of the issues that the distillers faced at that time, pioneer, resourceful people, right? Mm -hmm. They would store fish, fur, tea leaves, that kind of stuff into the barrels. So if you once had a barrel that had fish in it, you brought it back to the distillery and you filled it up again. Whiskey. Yeah, please don't ask me for line extensions of yeah. fish flavored whiskey, please. Um, <laughs> it's been finished in the fish barrel. Guys, gonna, that, that has I'm such gonna, a great winter. I'm going to pitch you something right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that was an issue. They actually inter uh, interviewed uh, Hiram Walker's son at the time, uh, Chandler Walker, and he, he said it was an issue. It was a real issue that they faced. And that's where the burning of barrels started. I'm not insinuating that Canadians were the first ones to burn the barrels, but mm -hmm. they caught on. That's how you at you and lo and behold you get the nice vanilla caramel toffee notes mm. so the question then i always ask is okay we know as whiskey you guys are whiskey geeks here mm -hmm. today and i know the audience is whiskey geeks the question i always ask people is which category of whiskey is the first one to mandate a minimum aging requirement scotch irish whiskey if you would ask me five years ago mm -hmm. <laughs> i would have said scotch right but it was actually canadian whiskey Yay. In 1890. <laughs> Us as Canadians. Yeah, 1890. Yeah. 1890. I, I got the answer earlier, so it's, it's, don't, don't be too impressed. <laughs> You're such a good researcher. <laughs> um, yeah, Canadian whiskey was uh, first one in 1890. was mandated by the Canadian government to age it for a minimum of two. Today it's three. Uh, at that time it was for a minimum of two years. And I love the reasoning. The reasoning yeah. being because the Tax. government wanted to collect taxes. Had nothing to do with, oh, consumers have a better product. No, right. no, no, no. no. Right. It's like, no, 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 we need to tax. Yeah, How can we keep track it. of all the whiskey they're distilling right. unless it's been aged in a warehouse and we could check, 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 check. Yeah, it, it was the tax revenue. Like, like I said, get it more. It's number one taxpayer. So how do you control it? Then we used to have 60 excise officers on site at one time. Because uh, the government had the money. They're like, whatever, we've got money. We've yeah. got all this money from the distillers. And the distillers were upset about it. And they, right. it, they were very upset about it. Uh, Hiram Walker was interviewed late in his life in 1895 and said, I would never start my distillery today knowing I'd age whiskey. Yeah. So when we see the new distillers today, when they're trying to make the first profit, what's the first thing they're making to try? It? Yeah, Something white usually yeah, yeah something white yeah, and, white and it, yeah. of course i would do the same thing right you want to turn around and make money mm -hmm. 
Well, J.P. Weiser fe felt the same effects. In 1889, his inventory level was 30,000 barrels on hand. One year into the law, it was 130,000 barrels on hand. One more year in the law was 260,000 barrels on hand. So you're now talking about uh, increasing your inventory by 20 times. Yeah, that's amazing. My boss would ring my neck if I increased my inventory by 20 times. It's yeah. just not mm -hmm. something you would do. It, so that's why the capital expenditures to start distilling today is a real huge risk to have buildings to store, tanks to blend, et cetera, and how things are full circle 150 years later when we try to get things off the ground. And these whiskey barons face the same thing in that day in life. Uh, it's interesting because um, apparently, so at the time, um, the Canadian whiskey was doing so well in the U.S. Um, that the Baldwin Bond Act came through. And one of the things that they had is that kind of, they didn't necessarily have to have an H statement on the bottle, but it had to be if it was aged below four years, it had to have an age statement uh, between two and four. Two and four. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the whole idea was that, that they were having problems with Canadian whiskey. And they, so it, in a sense, Canada passed the first law, and then the U.S. seven years later did Bottle, bottle and Bond yeah. Act. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And it did a bunch of other things, um, but one of them was age statements on the bottle. Age statements on the bottle, and then they, 1915 was yeah. the uh, British Excise Act as well, where Scotch and Irish whiskey did the similar thing. So yeah. It protected the consumer in the end. They realized what barrels were doing uh, to the whiskey, and uh, and Canadians were the first ones to do it. So by the year 1900, the Gooderham and Warts Distillery was the largest distillery in the world. Can Canadian whiskey yeah. was was the number one category in the world. It's hard to believe. Located right in Toronto. Toronto, it's a yeah. beautiful tourist tourist it part is, of town now. It is, and people often think that there is a distillery there because it is called the Distillery District, but. There nope. is not. No, and, and to kind of finish out the Canadian whiskey story, and, and I know it's key and very important to Canadians uh, and whiskey in general, was Prohibition, which is the year 1920 to 1933. 13 years of where the U.S. was not allowed to drink or consume alcohol or they were prohibited to even uh, make manufacture alcohol. Um, a little bit happened in Canada as well, but not to the same extent because everyone uh, could get a doctor's note. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Got in my throat. Don't hit the cough button. But yeah, yeah, that, that's uh, that. That was a little bit, but not a, not for a very long period of time. But um, 1920, 1933, uh, they prohibit it. So all, off, all of a sudden, somebody cuts off your distribution of something. Is that a good thing? Nope. nope. Not really. No. I know there's some cool stories around it, and we right. like to build it up as Canadians, but in reality, it was not a not good, good thing. So a gentleman by the name of Harry Hatch was a salesman out of the Corby Distillery, um, was one of the fellows that could distribute alcohol. The other one was Sam Broffin, but I'll, I'll just talk about Harry Hatch. Um, Harry Hatch was a salesman, and he also owned a bar in Oshawa. If anyone knows where Oshawa is, it's right yep. next to Toronto. It is. Uh, and the people that attended Harry's bar were the fishermen. So he would take the deal with a fisherman and say, you know what, can you take this bottle of Corby whiskey with you across mm -hmm. uh, uh, Lake Ontario and mm -hmm. sell it for me? Oh, yeah, we'll do that for you, Harry. And Harry actually had over 450 fishermen working for him. Mm. So that's where the term rum, rum runners, or they actually called it Hatch's Navy. Hatch's mm. Navy at the time uh, to yes. ship it across. And he controlled that uh, aspect of it. And he actually grew Corby whiskey at the time where everyone went into, into mass decline. And Harry was a smart guy. He's a smart guy, and as any salesman did, he, he called out the owner of Corby at the time, which was Mortimer Davis. Ironically, actually owned Players Cigarettes as well. Oh. And, and he, <laughs> as a man of vices. <laughs> he was going to say, that's a, yep. He called out Mortimer yeah. and said, Mortimer, I know what I'm doing for you. I want percent ownership, a part ownership in the Corby distillery. And, and Mortimer said, no way, or, we, or uh, Harry, I'm not going to give that to you. Mm -hmm. So Harry left disgruntled, as any salesman would, mm -hmm. and he took a chance, and he bought the Gooderham and Warts Distillery in 1923, took out a loan, bought it, 
turned it around. Corby went into mass decline. To make a long story short, Harry Hatch went and bought the four largest distilleries in Canada within eight years. You tell me times are good if you can buy the four largest businesses. <laughs> it's amazing. Like wow. think think yeah. of the four largest car companies or the four yeah. largest newspaper chains yeah. or yeah. You just couldn't do it unless things are wrong. Right. In, in, right. In this Prohibition, case. great for entertainment, television, terrible right. for Canadian whiskey sales. Such a common misconception. I mean we've had Devin on the on the program. He yeah. repeated the same thing over everybody. Mm -hmm. The the notes one oh one is like, Oh yeah, prohibition happened and Canadian whiskey boomed. But the reality is no, we were selling People, know, took was, they, 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 yeah, mm -hmm. people took advantage. Yeah, people took advantage. Took advantage, and to make a long story, within eight years, uh, Harry Hatch he he went and bought, uh, uh, went back and bought Corby. <laughs> he went back and bought Corby. <laughs> he went back and bought Wiser, uh, and he actually bought the Hiram Walker Distillery where we are today in 1927 for 14 million dollars, and they had 14 million dollars of whiskey inventory alone. Wow! Wow! The Walker wow. the Walker grandsons just did not see an out. They they wanted their cash. They yeah. wanted out. They didn't see any end of prohibition, and the site was actually valued at twenty-eight million. <gasps> wow! All the property what and assets around it. So, so when we see today, uh, and for us uh, under the Pernod Ricard umbrella, is it's oh, we had the brand names Gooderham and Works. We got the brand name J.P. Weiser, Henry Corby, Hiram Walker, and and Harry Hatch maintained all those brand names all those years. He never consolidated or knocked them off. Mm -hmm. We've maintained mm -hmm. those brand names today. That's amazing. Um, and, and the only one missing out of that list out of big hits that you have is the lot number 40, which is a... It's a newer release. It's a newer release. release yeah, but, uh, it's a newer just release. Wisers and Gooderham and Warts are probably a little more familiar to our listeners, but a lot number 40 also... We talk a lot talk about, about... Yeah, yeah we yeah. talk a lot about lot 40. It's, yeah. it's one of our faves. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a brand that, uh, as when I, when I first... I've been in the industry now for 20 years. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I started out as a microbiologist here. I was a guy that looked after the yeast for, for many years. I know we had a great discussion on yeast today, but that's yeah. maybe for another day. But, uh, <laughs> talk to the brand Lot 40, though. It was a brand I worked on as a once I got promoted in the research and development department as a junior blender. And mm -hmm. I was the guy working on the benchtop with it back in the late 90s when it was launched the first time. And and it, it, it went well, but I just don't think in 1998 consumers were ready for rye mm -hmm. whiskey. In fact, that was the single malt scotch phase, right? right. Mm -hmm. um, and But there was an undertow of people. So one's lot 40, one's lot, and there was a real lot, and, and same thing with Pike Creek as well. Um, so it was just a matter about market timing. Mm -hmm. So we relaunched again in 2012. Uh, when I became the master blender, I made some subtle changes to it. Uh, we now age it in brand new virgin oak barrel, and we had an excellent talk on, on wood chemistry earlier yeah. today. But it's key to the fundamental of that brand, because brand new virgin oak barrels are going to give you four to five times the amount of the vanilla, caramel, toffee notes, which is sweet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For me, rye is heavy, spicy, biggest of all the grains. Mm -hmm. So when my head is thinking of making Lot 40, I want sweetness to balance against spiciness. Mm -hmm. So we, we made that fundamental change to that. So if anybody still has original bottle 1998 Lot 40, oh. go back and compare. You'll see the difference between what once used American bourbon barrels does and virgin oak barrels will do. Say, well, if you do have some of the, the original lot number 40, feel free to send it to us <laughs> so we can also taste it. Actually, I'm sitting next to the man who invented it. So can we have some of it? Well, we were, <laughs> I have, we, we, were uh, we were going through the differences today and, and what barrels will do. And, that, and that's the fundamental pillar of Canadian whiskey, quite honestly, is I made a couple of mistakes in my life. I always like to say this, and, and one of them was uh, I went to Winnipeg in February, which is very cool. <laughs> Not to insult Winnipeggers, but we know it's cold, and I'm <laughs> in really nice cool. and warm Windsor. 
is when Celsius meets Fahrenheit, you know it's, it's gold. <laughs> <laughs> and the other one was I got onto television. I, I got onto an unprepared question, and, I, and in fairness, I don't think the the person that was interviewing me quite understood maybe the relevance of that question. And on TV, I had a, a Scotch whiskey ambassador beside me and an mm -hmm. Irish whiskey ambassador beside me, and I got I got asked this question first. Four minutes on casual TV, what makes Canadian whiskey better than Scotch or Irish whiskey? Hmm. That's not a fair question to Absolutely any whiskey not. producer because no. I enjoy no. scotch and I enjoy right. Irish whiskey. And I right. thought, oh, how, how do you answer that? And I think he was just yeah. trying to create some fun, maybe a little rivalry on TV. But really, it was one of my aha moment. Mm. And my aha moment was this, is Canadian whiskey is probably the most innovative whiskey category there is. Mm -hmm. There's very few rules and regulations on what we can do, but there's very important regulations. Is Canadian whiskey has to be a minimum of 40% alcohol fermented, aged, and distilled in Canada, aged in a wooden barrel. What are the one category says? A wooden barrel mm. of less than 700 liters, uh, made of grain, uh, and minimum of three years. That's it. Mm -hmm. So they give me latitude as a blender mm -hmm. on what I can do. And you had the opportunity, and, I've, I, and if any listener can get an opportunity to sit with me, I can change the distillation type, get a different character. I can change the grain type, you get a different character. I can change the barrel type, get a different character. How it's aged, the length of age. Um, there's a number of things I can do to create the different flavors and styles of Canadian whiskey. And that blending pillar of Canadian whiskey is really what uh, makes it what it is. I can make a whiskey for you, and you, and you, and you, and you. Mm -hmm. Your tastes are not the same as mine, and right. I think that's the wonderful place is Canadian whiskey. Right. So, Absolutely. like, if by comparison with bourbon, you have to, you you know it has to be new oak. It has mm -hmm. to, you have a mash bill. You're not blending yeah. different grains after the fact, um, and so that's creating very typical flavors. So bourbon, we all know the the rich uh, caramel forward flavors. Canadian whiskey, you can basically make it. You can have it like first fill or second used barrels, yeah, I, and I can mix and the grain together too. Rye. So, <laughs> like as you're saying, the yeah. original lot forty had reused barrels, so that lot for the rye flavor was really coming through. But it, it wasn't the yep. caramels weren't complementing the rye; uh, they were they were weaker, I guess. And you wanted a stronger kind of more caramel forward, so you used new oak, and then you've got yourself the new lot forty. Yeah, and being the Canadian whiskey of the year in 2013 and 15, I think mm -hmm. it was a. a good change to to the whiskey and uh, I think it adds value to the consumer quite honestly yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know it basically now introduce lot number 40 as the most award-winning Canadian whiskey or the hi highly recognized Canadian whiskey yeah yeah it is for sure yeah for sure it is and it, it is it's a very it's 100% rye rye for it's my ingredient that I will use it to blending in all these other whiskeys that we mm -hmm. make here uh, at our distillery mm -hmm. yeah um, talk a little bit about the um, uh, so kind of on your on your lower side, like your lower brand brand products, kind of the neutral grain, and and, 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 and building up to yes. to how a whiskey consumer may get into the category. So mm -hmm. our our uh, flagship brand is Weiser's Deluxe. Mm -hmm. uh, Weiser's is the most popular whiskey in Canada. Mm -hmm. It's what Canadians prefer to drink. And Weiser's Deluxe is a blended whiskey. Mm -hmm. uh, it has corn, rye, a little bit of barley in it. It is aged uh, five to nine years. So I'll blend in components of between that age range. Mm -hmm. Um, and it is traditional Canadian whiskey. It's double distilled uh, to make that lighter style uh, whiskey. But the core to Weiser's Deluxe is it's aged in once used American bourbon barrels. So if somebody tells you they age in a once used bourbon barrel, mm -hmm. automatically dried fruits. Mm -hmm. You're going to have dried fruit notes to it, and that, that comes to the forefront with Weiser's Deluxe. And there's going to be just a little bit of a hint of peppery to coming down through the throat, and that, that's the rye uh, component that we blend into that whiskey. Uh, very popular, very versatile mm -hmm. for bartenders. can be in the well. It can 
Ryan Coke, Ryan Gingers, mm-hmm. uh, and it's, and you want know quite often I'm, I'll do whiskey tasting. I've done 160, 160 whiskey tastings last year, and I always put our flagship yeah. in it. Mm-hmm. And I get the comment a lot. It's been a long time since I've had Deluxe Neat, right? Yeah. And yeah. It, it, I've forgotten how smooth a whiskey that that is. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm gonna interject for one second because you use and you're the master blender here, and and you use the word blending a lot. And blending sometimes um, gets a bad rap in whiskey making people sort of shy away from the word because you know it means you know it's scotch it's the blended in, scotch right it's, and it's even you know in, in yeah. bourbon they don't talk about you know blending the barrels together to make their profile they always so. talk about marrying or yeah. mellowing or anything like that but uh the the so maybe just uh what's the comfort level here with using the word blends well i'm pulling in what you're trying to look for if you like dried raisin notes in it yeah. i'm going to age in once used American bourbon barrels. Mm-hmm. If you guys want a nice f- caramely note, it'll be new wood. Mm-hmm. Maybe not like both. Maybe you don't like both extremities. Mm-hmm. Maybe you want somewhere in the middle uh, to get it to the to the taste palettes. Blending is just taking the best of everything. Mm-hmm. I love it's that. It's just taking the best of everything and putting it together to make the whiskey for you. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd love for you to come and have an opportunity to make your own blend here. And in reality, wouldn't it be kind of a, it's not going to happen. I'm not quite sure how you can actually do it around excise laws, but wouldn't it be cool to come here and pull and blend your own? Yes. Mm-hmm. Pull in this flavor. I like this flavor a little bit. Yeah. I like this little flavor. What if I put yeah. them together? We like to do it cooking at home. Wouldn't for sure. it be yeah. kind of cool to do what I do for a day? Yeah. yeah. Uh, yes, it'd be kind of cool to what you do for a day. So you're just pulling in the best <laughs> kind of things. And not to weed into deluxe and to, to Gooderham and Warts, but um, Gooderham and Warts is a great example of uh, uh, exceptional blending where it's a four grain whiskey. Uh, mm. I, I've challenged in whiskey tastings to uh, people who sell products. I said, can you tell me of a another whiskey that has four grains in it? And I usually get hesitations and mm. thoughts and look at I'm sure there's some out there, and, and I'm sure there is. There's, mm. there's probably mm-hmm. not many. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is taking corn, rye, barley, and um, wheat, and combining it together four and grains. also pot still and column still right you're this oh, is it, it's it's one of my big pain ones it's gonna have more because of all the components we actually bring right. in can together you, can you go honestly. through each, yeah. each of the components because i think this is because we can talk about pot still and column still and the different flavors that come through mm-hmm. uh, let me start with the grain sure and mm-hmm. let me start with the grain so what, what the four grains is this I f- if you have a sample in front of you maybe rush to go get one um i find when i taste this one is you'll taste it and you'll come out in this order as sure as can be and get the wheat first that's the bready nuance then you follow quickly with the nutty that's coming from the barley and then maybe 15 20 seconds later you get a sweetness a little bit on the sides of the tongue that's the corn that's coming through and then at the end you'll get that warm feeling through the chest that's the rye it comes out in that order uh every time uh and and consuming that whiskey and it's such a complex whiskey and i think that's Mm -hmm. what resonates with people the other thing the where we can make it complex is, is how we distill it and I'm gonna get a little technical here, but we learned today that when you ferment, it's the heartbeat of the operation, okay? When you ferment, uh, whether, whatever the grain it is, it doesn't matter, it's the heartbeat, and, and this applies to wine, beer, whatever you make, it's the heartbeat of what we do. Yeast will make alcohol and carbon dioxide. We, we all know that, but yeast also does this. It makes, in general, five categories of flavors, fruity, floral, green grass, soapy, sulfur. That's what yeast will do. And us as distillers uh, or, or brewers can control those flavor compounds by changing pH, 
pH, temperature, amount of sugar, that sort of thing. So we can get those dynamics into the whiskey. So when we take our finished mash, we call it a distiller's beer, we put it into a column still. Big, long, narrow tube. It's what bourbon does. To make a long story short, one pass through a column still, this is what happens. You keep the grain character you're using. You keep the fruity, floral, green grass, soapy characters the yeast makes. All stills are made from copper. Copper will pull out the sulfur notes, okay? You won't be in the whiskey business for very long if you don't have a copper still. I'll give you a little secret. We've all been using copper for 10 centuries. Mm -hmm. um, Jamie and I had the pleasure of doing a whiskey tasting with a new whiskey producer. Yeah. And remember, they didn't use enough copper, so yeah. he like, opened up the jar, and it was like the whole Burnt place. match. It'd be yeah. a burnt match yeah. kind of smell. It's, mm -hmm. it's not very pleasant. Yeah. Uh, and you need, to, and we know where the copper contact actually should be. If you really want to get into the science of it, mm -hmm. we do know where the important and where it wears out the quickest in a still. Mm -hmm. So one pass through a still, you keep all the characters minus the sulfur. The second thing we can do as as distillers, and this is what Gooderham and Warts did with the Riley patent, you can take that spirit, and you can either put it in a barrel or you can put it through a column still a second time. We call that the rectification still, and what that does is pull out all the fruity floral notes and makes a light base whiskey. Mm -hmm. What drives me crazy as a blender is how much rye is in your recipe, how much rye is in mm. your formulation. That's not a relevant question to a Canadian whiskey producer because uh, if you double distill it through two column stills, I can make it 100% rye, wheat, corn, or barley, and you can't tell the difference. And, and Jamie and I had that experience <laughs> earlier. We did yep. a taste and we're just we, a nose and we're like, nope, can't really. Can't really tell. Yeah. Yeah. But it, yeah. it's legitimate to put on the label, the front 100% mm -hmm. rye, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but I don't taste any rye. That's mm -hmm. not a fair question to ask me. Right. It's mm -hmm. not a fair question to ask me. And it, it could happen in the Canadian whiskey marketplace or 100% rye, but you could strip it out. I'm going to add one more thing here. Mm -hmm. So when we call them distill, we can also take that spirit and put it to a pot still. Pot stills are very simple. It's like boiling soup on the stove. Very, very easy. And if you slowly boil it, the things with the lowest boiling point come off first. That's called our heads. You've probably heard that terminology before. Heads is the green grass character the yeast makes. Okay? We cut it and throw it away. And if you had a chance to sit beside a little pot still in my laboratory, I do this exercise. What comes next is the fruity characters, then the floral characters, and then the grain characters come next. The pot gets really warm and very hot at the end. What's in the bottom of the pot is the soapy characters the yeast makes. That's the tails. We cut it and throw it away. Mm -hmm. So by column and pot distilling, concentrates up fruity, floral, and the grain character. And that's what lot 40 is. And that's also what we do in uh, Gooderham and Warts as well. I will use column distilled and pot distilled rye, barley, and wheat. So I can control those flavor elements that the yeast will make so we don't get too much soapiness or, or I want to enhance the fruitiness or I want to enhance the rye spiciness. Yeah. I can do that by distillation and boiling points. I think the most interesting uh, experience for me with the, related to this was having the column still rye versus the pot still rye and how the pot still rye thought, you know, it just came through the rye notes came through so much nicer. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas in the column still, they were subdued and there was, you know, it was a little heavier of a, uh, of a, of a and I think nose. you said a little oilier was maybe mm, the yeah. comment mm. you said, and, and that gets to the soapiness uh, that, that, that the yeast makes, and, yeah. and those are things we certainly will pull out with pot distillation. So, again, I'll come back to the Canadian whiskey is the most innovative whiskey category there is. Like the barrel type, mm. distillation type, grain type, it allows us to do a blending, and to answer your question on the blending, mm -hmm. I can pull in those pieces yeah. to create a, a blend that's uh, custom made for you. Yeah, and we've said this we on the podcast before. In, in the U.S., it's always the master distiller that has the the praise. In the U.S., it's like you're you're the superstar. Right. Uh, in Canada, it's really the master blender that that and, but, takes and, and that. And I'll give kudos to our master. We have a master distiller on site. Neil Bishop does yep. a fantastic job, and I can't do my job without him. Yeah. Right. 
you know uh, so it's it's very important to have all these in place uh, uh, and to create the flavors we're looking for and how consistent we are yeah it's interesting seeing you guys talk about how whiskeys you know how you guys work together and everything else and the kind of flavors you're looking for and what he's doing on his part of the job to bring those flavors forward has been was yeah. very fascinating. when you get him off the mic he might roll his eyes a little bit but, <laughs> <laughs> but but at the same point we understand that we have to keep the pipeline full of interesting creative things uh, and and I know consumers are looking for that and one of these things too is the JP Weiser's last barrel um, that is a mixed grain mash bill uh, that was sour mashed uh, 14 years ago and what it really was is a partnership with the LCBO they approached me a year ago now and said we want a unique one-time offering uh, for the Father's Day of this year uh, and I said well perfect I have an ingredient that used to be made in blends of whiskey I actually go back to the original formula book mm -hmm. I actually yeah. saw Hiram Walker making this way back when in the 1890s wow. uh, in components of, to blend into his whiskeys all the way along. Um, it went into brands like Imperial and Golden Crest and uh, Little Brown Jug, which was a Gooderham Awards. They, they maintained this in brands, and these brands eventually went away. And the last brand that we had it in was in 2001, which is no longer made. So I had 132 barrels left of this, mm -hmm. and I don't know what to do with them. And LCBO came along at a perfect time, and this is, this is what it is. It's a mixed gray mash bill, sour, sour mashed. Um, it's got those nuances. Uh, uh, maybe New a York bourbon producer would want. New York or reused oak? This one's in a once-used American bourbon barrels. Yeah. Yeah. We yeah, weren't using New Oak uh, back 14 years ago. so yeah. and, and it tastes like like a lighter, o less oakier style bourbon yeah. with more kind of the... Yeah. What, it's been getting a lot of buzz. Yeah. It's been getting it's a lot getting of buzz. A lot, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, people are really enjoying it. <laughs> Put it this it, way. In sure. this city of Windsor, Ontario, they probably sold over 170 bottles and within 40 hours of getting in our scores. Our wow. employees yeah. know what it is. <laughs> they yeah. they went out and bought it with their own money. <laughs> they, <laughs> they actually know they will never get this again. Wow. Yeah. yeah it's uh, great. It's interesting because uh, you, you said a couple of things that I think uh, strike home. Uh, one of them is like um, Canadian whiskey has always been known to have the very light flavored mm -hmm. and, and everything else. But now the new products you're releasing are not about light flavor. They're more about that. I got a couple flavor. of takes. Yeah. yeah, I got yeah. a couple of takes on it. And if you go back to history, remember we said people wanted light, smooth style whiskey. So that's what we distilled back in that era. Mm -hmm. um, if you actually go through history, we, we saw a level of rye in our whiskeys. You know, it was up a little bit. And then we get into the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s. Our parents liked lighter, smoother, mm -hmm. sweet, lighter, smoother. And that's the style of whiskeys that was in the marketplace today. You're now getting into the year 2000, 2010. Um, I look at it from this regard is maybe the diversity of Canada uh, and where we're going is I was growing up on meat and potatoes and not giving away my age, but uh, I was growing up on meat and potatoes, lighter, blander. Uh, my kids are growing up on sushi. Yeah. Yep. Um, so I think yeah. people are like bigger, bolder, complex foods. Um, I think you're seeing that and you're also seeing a little bit uh, the ethnic diversity in Canada, the spicy nuances. I think that's where the brands Lot 40, uh, Gooderham and Warts and, and brands like that are what consumer needs are today. Fundamentally, traditional Canadian whiskey, J.P. Weiser's Deluxe, is, is always going to have its place. But there are certainly uh, foodies out mm -hmm. there that, that want that heavier, spicier whiskey. And the other thing I'll take it as well is you also see a geography location on bigger, bolder whiskeys. The more you go to the equator, mm. the spicier and heavier rye whiskeys that they tend to consume versus if you go more north, it's the, the, the lighter, smoother. It's, it's an odd effect, but you will see that as well. What happened? What happened to Canadian? Like, why? 
why are we so apologetic about our whiskey? Why are we so know. quiet about our whiskey? Why do we not have the pride I'm in passionate. our whiskey? You are, you are. And, and, you know, absolutely, like I think Mark and I, like, you know, there's a lot of takeaways from today, but that's definitely one of them um, is, you know, we should be having a little bit more pride about the, the products that we're putting out. I, I don't know why Canadians are, are like that. I, it's, we're a, we are an apologetic bunch. <laughs> We make some great products, uh, both in whiskey and in other consumer goods. Um, and I, I think even sometimes Canadians don't realize some of the good products and brands we have until it's a right. success in another country. Right. <laughs> until it's a success point, in actually. another That's country. That's a really, really good point. Um, yeah. I think as Canadians, we should give every opportunity to celebrate the fine whiskeys that we make because I know we can compete against. Uh, the other whiskey categories in the world in terms of quality, in terms of what we can do and the versatility of what we can do. Um, we have well over 150 years of experience of making whiskey at this facility. There's 350 people here, and I know you met a bunch of them today, that mm -hmm. have a lot of pride in what they do. They light up when you guys walk around. They, mm -hmm. they know. They, they're, they're excited about working here. They're excited about the brands that they make. And, 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 and I can't even the number of quality tests we do uh, to to make the fine products today and and as Canadians it's not an appeal but I th certainly think we should get up and shout about uh, the fine brands that we make and recognize it within our communities we have people here that work very hard and to, and to support the brands that are that are made in Canada mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I yeah. think there's a lot of like misconceptions we were talking about it sort of um, when we were downstairs having a little tasting um, uh, how much other stuff are Canadians allowed to put in our whiskey because there seems to be this misconception that we can add all sorts of stuff to our whiskey. I, I think a lot of it is it has gotten out in terms of media. Uh, I know there's some websites out there that have looked at you can add neutral grain spirit to Canadian whiskey. You cannot. <laughs> you cannot by law to to add to the, that to the Canadian whiskey. Um, it's authentically protected with the consumer on what we can do. Mm -hmm. Uh, honestly, um, uh, and maybe because Canadian whiskey has that lighter side of it, and that's where maybe the misconception has come that mm -hmm. oh, it's light, so they must be putting vodka. It's brown vodka. Mm -hmm. It's because it's so light. No, it's what the consumers traditionally wanted. Right. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's a little bit of a misnomer. Um, the other thing, uh, the, because Canadian whiskey can be from one end of the block to the other end of the block, maybe that's a little bit of the reputation. I, mm -hmm. I do say we are innovative, and mm -hmm. we can have this kind of thing. At the same time, maybe when people pick it up, they get a little confused. I'm not sure which one I'm getting either. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So be very yeah. careful of what's on a label. Uh, yeah. I read the backs of the labels and, and s ask how it's distilled. Mm -hmm. Ask mm -hmm. what grains are in it. Mm -hmm. Ask, uh, you know, what's what's the age and that sort of thing of it. And then you should get an idea of what your taste perception should be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It does. It does seem like, uh, you know, in the U.S. they because they define bourbon and rye, you're kind of get a base familiar uh, profile, whereas here we're a little, we don't have those categories. So you buy Weiser's 18, you don't really know, you know, is that a rye flavored? Is that, you know, what what has been what has been done to it just by looking at the bottle? Yeah, with the Weiser's 18, with that one, I say it's the taste of angel share. You guys had an opportunity yeah. to go yeah. inside of our whis whisking aging warehouse out there. That mm -hmm. one is, if, if you want to know what a warehouse smells and is like, I can say tastes like, but smells like, mm -hmm. The Weiser's 18 is a year is a great example yeah. of that. It's got the nice green apple notes is what happens in a barrel for aging 18 years. Mm -hmm. Now, at our facility, uh, uh, at the Pike Creek Aging Facility, uh, we have uh, 16 warehouses. It's the size of 96 hockey rinks. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> Don't ask me football fields. I've, I've been asked I to translate. 97. <laughs> 96, 97. 96 hockey. Because right? no, right. I've taken the square footage and you uh, being the analytical yes. scientist that I am. Uh, <laughs> I, and and stack six, six barrels high. So in reality, we have 1.6 million barrels on site. And I, I think about, well, how many cities in Canada have 1.6 million people? And yeah. not many, not many, and very few. And that gives you a, an idea of, of the scope and how important Canadian whiskey is is to the workers that work here and certainly to, uh, to the government and excise and everything else. Um, Jamie, do you want to do a little test? Yeah. Because um, we have a great judge here, Dr. Don. Oh, boy. Um, he is, you have like 12 PhDs. I'm a judge. <laughs> I have no idea. I have one PhD. One brewing PhD. Brewing and distilling. Brewing and distilling. Yeah. But also your, your background is uh, microbiology. microbiology. Um, so we got it. We had it's a intimidating. This is a little I'm, intimidating. I'm, I'm very, I'm, I'm starting to sweat. Oh, my God. Um, so Dr. Don introduced us. To, he, we had pr PowerPoint presentations and samples. Yes. So oh, um, no. Dr. Don, why don't you ask us like, um, questions that oh we should gosh. learn from the la from <laughs> spending today with you about where whiskey flavor comes from I think about, <laughs> about where oh whiskey flavor I think we covered really, we covered so like not osmosis this. but the other one uh, <laughs> diffusion diffusion oh see? my god so uh, why don't you take us through that give us a quick test you're also a professor you also teach yeah uh -huh. I've lectured at uh, lecture. some university yeah, I had an opportunity to lecture at Cornell uh, this uh, past right, spring let's do it let's, let's give us a test do we need to write it write it down on paper no no okay all right, I'm we're just going to shout scared. out answers. We're going to be very rude. But let's run you, us through. You want me to ask you a question on the technicality of making to see whiskey. if we learned anything? We may have not <laughs> we learned do, anything. We know. We, I, I feel like I need. I need to study before. Like I need <laughs> the PowerPoint presentation, and then I can do this. I feel like if I, I if I fail. I'll leave here feeling like a failure. No, it's we're all winning. We're all winning. We're all winning. Because we're both going to be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, oh, no. If there's anything no. I want you to walk away with today. Oh, no. <laughs> the hoodie's is. coming on. <laughs> Jamie's currently hiding. I want you to give me the 10 nuances that yeast does during the fermentation oh, cycle. Geez. No, oh. I know. I know. I'm, I'm oh, not my how about this? Is what what do you walking away? What do you believe is the most important thing in in the whiskey process to control flavor? Fermentation. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and what's my line of that? Oh, it's the heart. The heart of the. This, it's the heartbeat. The heartbeat. It's I, the heartbeat. I loved yeah. when we were focusing <laughs> on how much effort you guys put into fermentation. And we're like, we've seen this at another distillery. We, yeah. And we're like, Maker's Mark. This is exactly how Maker's Mark makes their whiskey. And you're like, yeah, we That's work. the philosophy. That's the, the philosophy. The you guys philosophy work is if on. fermentation yeah. goes right and you make the yeast happy, yeah. everything else is going to fall All in right. line. Okay, the other one I'll ask you Flavor is extraction this. from the wood. Let's talk okay. about flavor extraction. Flavor extract. Do you know the four things that happen in a barrel? How about that? Uh, this, uh, this would be good for your audience. There are All four right. things that happen in a barrel. I can name the easiest one. This is probably, if we did Family Feud, this would be the not one. Oxidation. Oxidation is number one, and that's the taste of angel share. So as, as in, our, in sites that are warmer, mm -hmm. you're going to get a lot more oxidation in a barrel, and I call it a green apple note. And I really invite the audience to try J.P. Weiser's 18-year, because mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. double distilled light whiskey, aged 18 years. So this is what happens in a barrel. It's the taste of angel share. I, I like, so what we learned about oxidation is that is the one flavor component that moves in a straight lineup. The longer you age something, the more it just, mm -hmm. the more you get that green apple notes. And, and it occurs for us at 10 yeah. parts per million a year. Mm -hmm. and, and it will vary in a warmer distillery, you're gonna get more. more. And what, why that is, there's no electricity in a warehouse, right? right? Mm -hmm. So whatever the external temperature is, is going to be what happens right. in a barrel. So that's one thing in a barrel is oxidation, yes. Diffusion? 
Is that wrong? Diffusion, I always say, is an asterisk, but what diffusion oh. is, oh. is finishing in a barrel. So what the barrel was in the barrel beforehand is going to come out into your product. So right. if you're a port barrel finished or rum barrel finished or any of that matter, those things are going to come out rather quickly into barrel. So that's called diffusion. Number right. two, yes. So that, and that was the one that was like, it, right, very quick time. So what, you just need to put it in for how long, you said? Seven days for diffusion to occur. Anymore, you're just getting chemical oxidation and wood. I'm going to give away the third one. Wood, wood extraction. extraction. Wood yes, extraction. Wood extraction. Hey. <laughs> oh yes, gosh, wood extraction is your uh, um, vanilla caramel toffee notes. Yeah. And you, you, in part of your uh, your studies, you've worked at um, first fill barrel, sorry, brand new oak versus second used oak and how different flavors extract. So you may get more caramel. Yeah. The analogy I like to say, uh, the quality of wood is more important than age. Mm -hmm. except if you're looking for angel share reaction. Mm -hmm. uh, quality of wood is more important than the age. The brand new virgin oak barrels all get four to five times the amount of vanilla caramel toffee than a once used American bourbon barrel. Mm -hmm. Think of it like this, and it's very simplistic when you think of it from this regard, is let's say you have sugar coated on the inside of a glass, put water in it, throw it away, put water in it, throw it away. Mm -hmm. Eventually the sugar is gonna dissolve. Mm -hmm. Same thing with a whiskey barrel. Okay. Okay, so um, wood extraction. I, I yeah, think I got another one. Uh, charcoal, sulfur filtration. Yeah. yeah, so the black burn. Well done. The black burn char on the barrel will uh, pull out whatever sulfur notes are missed in a still. So that's very important is the blackness inside of barrels to pull that out. And this is one of those things, if a distillery is planning to age something for 8, 12, 15, 20 years, they don't have to worry about sulfur as much. In yeah, so it'll pull it out. Right, but if you're wor working with a younger whiskey, you want to pull it out earlier. Yeah. The um, last one we didn't really talk about. Oh, good. Oh. Okay. <laughs> but it's the very most simplest one of it all. What, what happens in a barrel to make whiskey look the way it does. The color? Color, yes, color. very simple. Yeah. It's color. So oh, well, we would have agonized if he had let us, we would have agonized, <laughs> I don't know what I else. I don't know what else. Yeah, it's yeah. Yeah. Color, right. color is, yeah. the, is the other thing that really happens in a barrel. Um, uh, certainly uh, is, it inflects what we see today. We, in Canadian whiskey, and like many other whiskey categories, we can add caramel coloring to it, uh, but color is, is certainly comes out in a barrel. If you, if you haven't seen uh, whiskey before it goes in a barrel, it looks water white, it looks like water, it looks mm -hmm. like vodka. Mm -hmm. It really does it for those who have never seen that before. All right, yeah. so we've got color, uh, which we extraction with the thing, wood extraction, kind of taking the flavors from the, uh, from the oak. Uh, diffusion, which you're is the studying right now. Uh, which only happens in finished <laughs> finished cast. finished cast. So when you got your rum casts or or, or, sure cast or, or whatever it may be. Um, uh, subtractive reactions. Subtractive reactions. Oh boy. Oxidation and I think did we get them all? I think I so. I don't know. Caramel toffee. How about the other question I'll, oh, I can no. ask for you today? Uh -huh. uh, do you know the flavors you get from each of the grains? Um, yeah. <laughs> Barley is nutty. Barley is nutty. We call it nutty. That's kind of my thing, but, but nuts. Rye nut. spicy. Rye spicy, yeah. Uh, Corn is sweet. sweet. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> and wheat is bready. Bready, you got it, yeah. Wow. Look yeah. at us. Yeah. Bready. Look at we've learned. This is terrifying. It's actually scary. Like, the I, word test for me sends me into, like, a full-fledged panic attack. All right. I... I <laughs> Okay, this this last I don't know how many you want more to do, but this one, one is good. for Let's you. Do one more, and and this is the the one I always will complain about to people is, 
Don't ask me how much rye is in my recipe. As I discussed earlier. My favorite Don Livermore quote. My favorite Don Livermore quote is, don't ask me uh, how much rye is in it, because we are brewers as well as distillers. We can concentrate the flavors of rye up, or we can strip it out. Yeah. Mm. So don't ask me how much rye is in my product, but ask me how much. Oh, I don't know the answer to this. I mean, <laughs> I know it sounds like something acetate. I. Uh... You're thinking about it. Yeah. You're thinking. I, I've actually heard Jamie use this one. I know. Before, so oh no! I'm terrible at remembering long words, so I'm just like. <laughs> hey, for those who are real whiskey geeks out yeah, there, yeah, actually, get I did there. a whiskey tasting once, and I had a chemist in the audience, and she asked me to draw the chemical compound on the bottle <gasps> I was signing for. Amazing. Oh. <laughs> and it's at, don't ask me how much rye is in my yeah. whiskey, but ask me how much four ethyl gyacol. Four ethyl gyacol is the spice. Of that comes off the rye okay. into our products. That really gives you an indication what rye drinkers are really looking for is how much for ethylgyacol. Or ethylgyacol. And, and it's in the parts yes. per billion. Quite Love honestly. it. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> That's great. I like this is this is wonderful. Uh, but one thing that I, I really love that's kind of neat, and especially this really applies to you, Dr. Don, is that your background is in microbiology and your thesis was on like wood, was it not? It, it was wood. Yeah. Uh, yes. Um, so I'm one of very, very few uh, master blenders in the world that has a PhD in brewing and distilling. Yeah. Most of us uh, that gets a PhD ends up on the beer side of the business. For sure. For uh, sure. So there's very few. I only know of one other. There might be more out there, but there's very few. And wood is what I was doing. So what my claim to fame uh, really in industry is I invented a technique using infrared sensors using this what was my master's project. Uh, that is now a commonplace instrument in the measuring the fermentations in industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we use that today, and most people will use that in distilleries today to control their fermentations to make sure they, they go to completion. But to take it to the next level, what I did during my PhD was I took the same infrared sensors, and what I could do is it's using fiber optics. I could take, it's just like a scanner at mm-hmm. a grocery store, if you can imagine that. Mm-hmm. Take a piece of wood shine infrared against it i can tell you in 30 seconds how much wood is going to go into that product i can tell you what the whiskey is going to like like look like in three years of aging in 30 seconds amazing Amazing. so it's a technology where i was trying to determine the quality of barrel and i got it to work Mm -hmm. so i know if i was to buy bourbon barrels from somebody Mm -hmm. how much wood character is going to come out to so i could actually reject the barrel or take it in to know what my whiskey is going to look like it's bizarre to measure because that's always been the art of whiskey. You don't measure a barrel and everything gets good. No, right. not really. You right. could actually put it to a science. Wow. And I left my PhD to the level of a laboratory. I could never take it to the, somebody else can do that work, uh, mm-hmm. but they could take it to an industrial level uh, and wow. design fiber optics to do that. But I think, about, I, I think about how much money Buffalo Trace would save with this because they do all the different wood <laughs> right. uh, experimental yeah. collections. But, no, but don't worry right. about I, I, I can tell yeah. you, yeah. whatever burn, and really, yeah. really when it comes to wood, mm-hmm. the most important thing probably is two things. Is seasoning the wood yep. or burning it? Mm-hmm. Right. It, it, seasoning means you're leaving it outside essentially to break it, it down. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. really think of a barrel as a Jenga tower. You want to break it apart into its building blocks. Mm-hmm. And those are the building blocks, the vanilla, caramel, toffee notes that come into whiskey. Imagine that. If you could actually measure that within 30 seconds. Yeah. Wow. I, we, we can do that. We, we can do that. That sounds amazing. And, and, <laughs> Yeah, I, I was going to say, and, and, and given all of that, and, and your, you know, how invested you are in the in the science portion of it, you have such an appreciation for the human oh, art it, it, of it yeah, as well. It, like, yeah, you, it, I might sound like a science geek, and I am a science geek. <laughs> <laughs> My wife likes to call me a beaker, uh, <laughs> but but at the end of the day, 
you can have a million dollars worth of analytical equipment mm -hmm. everywhere to do what you're doing, it comes to the human element. Mm -hmm. The most important thing we do is human element here. You met Christy at our grain elevator. Mm -hmm. She picks up the grain, smells it, rejects it based on the odor. Mm -hmm. We have a sensory panel in our distillery smelling the spirit coming off the still. If it doesn't meet that expectation, it's rejected. If it, if it bring it out of the barrel, it's the sensory panels that are the most important thing that are here. It doesn't come to one person. Master blender you might think in the end all and be all, it's the people that work here. Mm -hmm. And I often say tasting notes are one of the things that drive me a little bit crazy. Mm -hmm. Because who am I to tell you uh, that you're able to smell this note or that note in the whiskey? Sensory analysis, and don't ever get frustrated, those in the eye, don't ever get frustrated, is like eye color. You're given what you're given. Um, you have blue eyes, brown eyes, whatever your eye color may be, you can only sense certain things. There's things that I'm good at, the things that I'm poor at, and that's why you leave it to a panel of people. I'll tell you what I'm poor at. I'll, I'll, I'll leave my dirty laundry here. I cannot smell coconut. Mm -hmm. Coconut is a, a thing I cannot smell very well, but I know it. And, and so if we have issues like that around it, I, I, that, that other people can do that. I thought that was amazing. So in your panel, you have people that are more sensitive to mossy notes, which you don't want, uh, yeah. or uh, soapy or sulfurs as yeah. well. Sulfur is so, one of my good ones, but yeah. Yeah. So sulfur is a good one for you. It may not be a good one for somebody. So that's that's really fascinating. Uh, yeah. 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 It's really and it's the people element. It's yeah. really yeah. the people that make it here that really drive the fine quality spirits that we do. Awesome. Thank you. Well, that's a, yeah. That's great. Um, and uh, Don, I'd love to thank you again just for helping me out when I was writing the book. Uh, we had a we had a conversation about wood extraction when I was writing the whiskey cabinet, and then you sent me your science paper, one of your science papers uh, from uh, your PhD. And Jamie goes to me, she's like, "You read that?" I'm like, "I just read the abstract." I mean, there's <laughs> that's as far. That was hard enough. I mean, yeah, that, like, that was hard enough. That's why that's why there's a phone call. So I have some right. questions. I have a few yeah, questions. Can you explain this whole thing? <laughs> but no, I really appreciate the help. No, no, and thank you're, you for, you're for having us today. It was great. Yeah. We, we've been here uh, since the morning. I, my alarm was set for 445, and we got here a little early because Mark drove exactly the speed limit the whole time. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we got to spend the whole day with you, and thank you. Oh, thank you for thank coming. You. I appreciate you guys being my guest here.